Welcome to episode 136 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever discussing our passion and love for Linux. I'm Zeb and with me this week is the Mbop boy band of Linux, Eric, Michael and Ryan. I've never been called a boy band member before, so this is a first for me. Thanks, Zeb. (laughs) I'll be the edgy one. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say what my Ryan will be, but before I get into what my friends have been up to this week, let me explain. And before we even get into there, I just wanted to say a big heartfelt thank you to Wendy, Derek and Dalton um, for sitting in my chair for the last three or four episodes. You all were so much kinder than Zeb. Thank you guys so much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll make you pay for that later on in the show, Ryan. Don't you worry about that. But sincerely, you did a really good job and I was actually quite jealous watching back the episodes every week and thinking that should have been me there but hey ho it is what it is so what have i been up to the last four weeks well let me put one thing straight i haven't been on holiday for four weeks as much as i would like it um the first two weeks the wife and i went midweek to midweek and we we spent some lovely time in in malta and it was exceptionally hot just like it is here but i don't have a swimming pool here to dive into and I don't have that Long Island iced tea, is it? Yep, Long Island oh, iced tea. I got delicious. a flavor for that in the heat, and it was just <laughs> astonishing. Have a dip in the pool, come out, up to the bar, back to your sunbed, and away for the next half hour before you jump it again. <laughs> the next week, I had to go to my grandson's first birthday party. So there's no way I can miss a family event like that. So happy birthday, grandson. I'm not going to send you say your name out on the channel because it'll be up to him whether or not he wants his granddad happy birthday birthday. from destination linux crew i know he's gonna watch that he probably has us on his youtube list right of course (laughs) most definitely right next to peppa Peppa pig (laughs) oh let's not forget the peppa pig they all love peppa pig um and then finally last week i um got invited by luke of pine 64 to uh, attend an event in london uh where tj lim the founder of pine 64 flew across to meet us and bought a whole raft of goodies. So I'd already seen the Pinebook Pro. Before, so- we get, before we continue, I actually wanted to say something. Like, uh, I, I def- We definitely need to get into more details about this because that's awesome. But you said that you didn't go on holidays for this four weeks. But I'm hearing two weeks of holiday, a party, and another party. So Yeah. What do you call four a weeks holiday, of holiday in Britain? Because <laughs> that sounds very four weeks of holiday to me. <laughs> yeah. Two weeks of holiday, one week of family, one week of work, because I was doing this for you guys. Okay, technically that's uh, fair. Uh, that is for the show. Okay. Come and talk to the show. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's fair. Just because we had a few nice pints in the, in the London sun, that's got nothing to do with it. That's <laughs> All right, so let's get to the pine, the pine book stuff. Absolutely, yeah. So, so as I said, T.O. Lim came over, the founder from Pine64, um, and he bought some kit with him. So I'd seen the, the Pinebook Pro before. So I was more interested in the Pinebook tab, or I can't remember exactly what they're going to call it, but they've got a, a Pine64 tab, and they're bringing out a Pine64 phone. Now, what was interesting was he bought this phone out, and we all got excited, and we all rushed across it, and I picked this thing up, and I thought – Blimey, it's going to have an RJ45 cable on it. This thing's going to be huge. No, Seb, this is the developer platform. Here's a, here's a, here's a motherboard. 
With a is that something we would want, though, as an RJ45 jack in our phones? Would that be the new freedom jack once the headphone jack comes back? Is Where's my RJ45? Well, the, 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 the silly thing would be, it would be, be like people who get lost having a piece of string going back home. You'd have this big <laughs> reel of RJ45 on your back. And as you walk down the shops, it was wrapping itself around the trees. And then, no, I don't think that would work somehow. But it, it, it made me smile. So it was, it was a really interesting day. And the, the talk he gave to us, for me, ended up with what I thought was a, a really good part of it. Um, and that was him wanting to give back to the community. Because for me, something that's strange that came out of it as well is Pine64 has no employees. Every penny that they make goes back into the production of the latest and greatest Pine64 entity. So they're all doing this for free. They're all working for Pine for free. And I don't know, you know, I don't know how they're going to make money out of it or whether it's going to be a, um, whether you could class it a proper company because it doesn't have uh, members of staff. I don't know. It was really, really strange setup and i don't know if michael's had any experience yeah, the, with that the structure or, of it is because tl is uh is, is he's got other businesses so this is more of a passion project for him because he cares so much about the like the linux space and the, and the open source space kind of thing so that's right. why it's that's why they can sustain that because he's doing it because he wants to excellent thank you very much indeed for that so what they're going to do is they're going to sell this pine phone for 149 dollars and immediately, as part of that, is going to be a $10 donation, which they will pile up. And then when they've got enough, they will take the cost of a Pine Book. And we're not quite sure whether it's going to be the original Pine Book or the new Pine Book Pro. And they're going to give it to a community somewhere. Wow. So they are going to start donating free Pine Books to the needy. Where they get that needy list from, I don't know. Some, you know, some list of charities. And I think they might have even talked about the community having a chance to vote within yes. the forum about where where that should go. Um, so, so so that was quite astonishing. Now, the only frustrating thing was it was a really early, early development module. And I know um, that what you're going to be interested in is what does it look like? Right. Well, How fast is it? Is it snappy? Is it cool looking? Well, it's going to be cool looking because it was strapped to a motherboard. Even yeah. though it's a, a small one. That's cool to me. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It depends on what you th think looks cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to show to the members here within the, the video, a, I'm holding up my eFoundation phone. Um, and although it didn't look similar to that, it was more like a Linux desktop with a couple of icons on it. And one of the interesting subjects was he wasn't quite sure whether he was going to bother with the whole convergence thing in other words the pinebook pro into the tab into the phone or whether he was just going to keep them as three different entities he said he needed to see how he felt as, as and when things um develop but it was interesting to note that he did say that it would probably end up looking something like that so ryan that's something more akin to the iphone yeah, you're giving yeah, yeah. me so many geek sweats here because there's so much to talk about from the Pine tab to the Pine phone to the e-phone that you have in your hand. I'm like, I don't know what to do here or where to start. So, uh, well, what you held up for those who aren't watching the video version was the e-phone. And this is part of their program where they are taking refurbished phones, repurposing them, putting the operating system on so people don't have to deal with the routing and all of that. And you can purchase one for very reasonable price. I think you said it was like 200 squiddles. What, what kind of money do you use there? 
280 euros um, for uh, a refurbished, and it is in mint condition, Samsung Galaxy 7. So when you held that up, the operating system was very, uh, the the home screens and the icons are very reminiscent of uh, iPhone screen so for those like that and some people love the android i personally don't like android's interface i prefer iphone's interface i know that's shocking for everybody um and and the e looks like that where the icons are kind of square rounded everything's on your multiple screens there and you can get to it um but to me that looks gorgeous so how do you like uh, where do i start here how do you like the pine phones implementation versus what you've seen in other phones well, I think, it's, again, it, it was such early days yet, but I, I think if you've seen his Pinebook and you've seen the Pinebook Pro, then you know where he's going for. Yeah, He's going for a very usable, simplistic system that has, that has all the functionality you need. Um, now, you've obviously got to realize the limitations of it. It's going to be a $150 phone. Therefore, you're going to have $150 um, equipment built into that phone. But if you look at what he's managed to do with the Pinebook Pro for $200, he's going to be a whiz at what he's going to be doing with this Pinebook um, phone. But the concept that he's got is very similar to the concept that the E-Foundation has got. He wants to de-Google-fy everything. So what was was interesting about the E-Foundation is they've taken Lineage OS and they've managed to strip i'm not sure whether they've stripped out all the components or whether they're just tricking google and it's completely 100 blocked it Mm. cannot phone home at all consequently on general day-to-day use i'm getting three to four days out of this phone whereas i get a day day one charge you're getting three to four days one one because it's not phoning home every five minutes isn't that fascinating And it it works just as quick as a a, a standard Android phone. There weren't any apps. But what was really strange was quite funny. I got the phone up, loaded it all up, and I started to say, right, I'm going to sign on. Uh, Zebedee.boss at Gmail. No, 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 stop. Stop. This is a de-Googly-fied phone, so let's go and get an eFoundation email address. So I'm now starting to sign into everything with my um, Zebedee.boss at e.email which is the uh, eFoundation's email that they're giving us. Um, now, I don't know whether uh, TL Lim is going to be going that far with what he's putting out so that he's going to have a, a whole corporate backing behind him or whether he's just going to concentrate on having a solid, robust, usable phone with, and I think I'm right in saying so, but I'll, I'll, I'll double-check with Luke when I get a chance to check to him that I think as well that he's writing his own operating system for it. So it is going to be a proper Linux phone. Now, whether he starts off with something and moves on for somewhere else, um, I'm not quite sure. But what's also interesting is he's got a lot of technical backing behind him because one of his long-lifetime friends is actually the founder of OnePlus. So wow, that's cool. It very large circles. Yeah. So you mentioned one thing that I wanted to just tease out a little bit, that it's a $150 phone and $150 hardware. Um, you know, if you look at the Pinebook itself, they were always very upfront about the fact that it was a low power device, that it had a very specific use case. And for mm-hmm. some people, it was was not going to be a good experience, if depending on what you were trying to do. And I think if you set your expectation properly, 
that mm-hmm. you know, for $150, the Pine phone is going to give you all of the cover, all the bases, right? You're going to have a camera. Will it be the best camera? No, it's going to have a screen. Will it be the right? So you're going to compromise a little bit based on the price, but ultimately it's delivering a, a unified package that will have, you know, some sort of Linux based system running on it. And I think it is that sort of dipping their toe in the water of, can this be successful? Can we, at this price point, are people going to be interested in it? And so I, my, I, me personally, I usually don't get excited about handsets. I usually don't get excited about the promise of Linux on a device. But in this case, I'm very much looking forward to testing that out and, and getting one. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm definitely getting one myself as well. There's a lot of cool stuff about it because if you talk about like it doesn't have like the highest hardware quality or whatever, but it does have a reasonable amount of power for the price. Like it's only right. 150, but it's got two gigs of RAM. It's got like a, 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 a really decent size screen. So like a six inch screen, I think something like that. Like there's a lot of stuff that's really cool. And they also have a lot of privacy stuff and they have a lot of open stuff. Like if you look at the comparison between the Librem five and the pine phone, the the Pine phone or the Librem Five is talking about the open uh, the open firmware the open source aspects of it. Basically, everything that's a, that's available in the Librem is going to be available in Pine phone because they're going to have a separate baseband. They're going to have the ability to turn off the microphone, the Bluetooth, the everything with like switches. And so it's it's they're they're not only just making a a, a device that happens to run Linux. They're heavily focused on the aspects of you know this is a they're 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 in line with the philosophy of open source as well. And that's one of the things that I think that's like, I'm extra excited about that because one, it's really cool to have a Linux phone that's dedicated for this, that kind of hardware for it. But Mm -hmm. also they are making like basically they're hitting every checkbox that I want reasonable price, reasonable hardware, uh, you know, privacy oriented, everything like I'm so excited. This is the difference between a company doing something out of passion Mm-hmm. And a company doing something just for how much money can we make out of it? Because, well, I think it's sorry. It's I think it's also the difference between a company that has hardware expertise mm-hmm. and a company who is a maybe a software based company or doesn't have that hardware expertise. How difficult it is to develop any kind of hardware product. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and so having that passion, and then like you said, which is a very good point, having you know being a hardware company first, and, and then releasing a product is. It's something you see, like when we talk about AMD, Lisa Sue, who runs it today, who turned around AMD, because God knows we wouldn't have bought their processors. Many of their processors yeah. in the past was a bona fide electrical engineer. That's what she did, right? So mm-hmm. this is somebody who understands the product, understands mm-hmm. the engineering that goes behind it, and therefore can push and talk to engineers within the company in a way that they could understand and relate to versus a suit coming in saying, we need something faster, just make it, do stuff or else you're fired type um, of mentality, right? Yeah. Um, and, and you see that with the Pine book, because not only in, in is Pine 64 creating incredible products that, in my opinion, are insanely innovative, especially when you look at the price points that they're doing, they're also going after social causes. The hmm. idea of giving away computers, because I'm a part of some foundations that do very similar things where they're giving phones and other things to individuals that do not have access to internet is closing the digital divide is such an important cause because there are kids out there in all the countries, first world, third world countries that have no access to internet. They have no ability to do their homework. There are, there's no bus routes to get them to a library. So getting these in people's hands are so important because think of the disadvantage that these families have not having access to that 
type of, you know, not having access to phones, not having access to tablets to do their homework or laptops and Pine 64 is making it accessible to everybody. And then looking for those who can't even afford that and giving some away there to the community as well. It's just when you buy from a company like that, it makes you feel good. Well, and it's not like you needed any more reason, right? They're already doing right. all the things we're looking for anyway. And then, hey, just on top of that, we're socially aware as well. So yeah. um, it, I wanted to just make mention too. So having Dalton on last week from UB Ports, uh, that was amazing. The after show discussion that we had, the patron chat, uh, he really talked a lot about like how the firmwares work, the guts of the phone, like some of the challenges of building software to run on top of handsets and things like that. So if you're not a, if you have access and you didn't watch the video, I would definitely go back and check it out if you're interested in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, yeah. One, one final thing before we move on, because it wasn't available on the prototype. With the um, Pinebook Pro, you very quickly have the ability to disable Bluetooth, disable the webcam, disable wireless. At, and it's all, it's not software driven. It's based upon the keyboard hardware. And hard coded into it is a function key. Hold it down for three seconds, your, your, your camera's off, your, your Wi-Fi's off, your Bluetooth's off. And then inversely, hold it down again for three seconds and it's back on again. So if you go into that internet cafe and you're a bit worried about the guy in the corner, turn everything off. Do what you've got to do and then when you leave, turn it back on again. Now, they don't want that shouted from the rooftops. That's why we're going to move on off swiftly because what they don't want is people then buying them to try and work out how they've done it so that they can hack it. But from what I believe they've told us is you've got to have physical access to the keyboard to be able to get at that. But it's not like part of the OS where you, once you've hacked in, you can yeah. get it. It's a physical hardware thing, which is which is why it's awesome. Because that, that makes it like, as if it was just this operating system, as soon as you change the operating system, you no longer have that feature. So the, the fact that they put it in the, heat, in the keyboard is, is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this just, I, I just love everything about this because for the first time you have companies, hardware companies to Eric's point out there who are creating and representing the things that we expect from our Linux desktop. Somehow we've lost our way in what we've used for phones. I, I don't think we had much choice up to this point. There wasn't a lot of great choices. Now you have E, you have Lineage, you have Ubuntu Touch, and you've got Pine64 out there that are giving us the same privacy, security, and really community um, involvement that we expect from a Linux desktop, and they're giving it to us in a mobile device. This is so exciting for me to finally see it happen. The mm -hmm. last thing I wanted to, to mention was, Ryan, you said you know, access to technology, and so many people don't have that. If you look at access to particularly the internet, but in technology in general around the world, the usage of cellular devices or mobile devices far outweighs you know, traditional computers in many, many countries because they just don't have the infrastructure to have a, like, where am I going to put a computer? But a phone, everyone can have a phone. And having a choice in that phone and being able to buy $150, I know in the rest, in many parts of the world is a lot of money, but compared to products that the major manufacturers are putting out, that's a very affordable price point for a solid device that gives you all of those things like privacy. And, uh, and so I think that, again, is another area where hopefully we can make more inroads because it is important uh, with the saturation of that technology. It's a brilliant point. And to add what happens is generally those individuals who cannot afford those phones or it's very difficult for them to afford it or get internet service to make those payments, they also are the same ones that basically 
become the victims of the companies that are the most privacy invasive out there because they're going to look for the free Gmail account, right? They're going to look for all of the free apps and the free Google suite. And they're basically mm -hmm. victimized by not having that one because they're not the ones who can afford to go pay for an email service, pay for an office suite, all this. That's where open source has done so much good because if you can get the message out about the open source apps that are out there that are also um, not all of them we're supposed to talk about being free and cost, but most of them frankly are, and they don't have that privacy invasive. Now you're not just, you don't have these big companies basically targeting people who don't have money or the resources to do something about it. And that's why open source is so important for the digital divide out there. Absolutely. So a great time was, was had by all. So moving swiftly on now that I've described my last four weeks, uh, Ryan, what have you been up to this week? I've had a ton of fun this week playing with XFCE 4.14, of course, in Arch, which I have Arch running now on the X570 board here with the new Ryzen 3rd gen. So I was so happy that uh, MSI came out and finally patched that. But I did a pure Arch install and have been playing with XFCE 4.14, enjoying everything about it. It is XFCE at the end of the day, solid, reliable does what you expect it to every time and that's what i'm on right at this moment but i also have something that's going to make you gloat a little bit seb go on in i got my hands on a used 2016 system 76 oryx pro no way and it has an nvidia 970m in it so i have a computer in here that's team green but I couldn't pass it up because it was $400 on eBay. Wow. You want to know why it was so cheap? Go on in. Because they took a System76 machine, which, by the way, they hold their value incredibly well if you go out there on eBay. Like, they are within a few hundred dollars of what their original cost was, even a couple years old. So these systems hold their value well, unless you load them with Windows. Because nobody's searching for a System76 with Windows 10 on it. They're searching for a System76 with Linux on it. So that's the one that I picked up as somebody had Windows on it. So the first thing I did is nuked that, put Pop! OS on it. <laughs> I got to say, it's pretty impressive, man. I really, <laughs> really enjoy it. So I'll be doing some videos on that machine. Sounds like a tip people are going to be nice. so using. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look for the System76 machine with Windows 10 on it. Yeah, you'll save is, some money. So uh, finally, your tiles at the back of you hold true. Team green. I guess that whatever, just for this moment, I'm and selling your, it. I'm selling it today. No. And your chair, <laughs> and, your, and your lampstand. There's well, says AMD's original it. color was green, so that's why it's just I'm just a throwback <laughs> representing here. That's, yeah, whatever. That's that's so convenient for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, Michael, what have you been up to? Well, actually, I've been doing quite a few things with uh, my system. I've been changing up stuff. I've been I'm using different distros for the for throughout the week. And this week, we this this particular episode, there was a little bit of a hiccup as far as the recording goes. So I need to do a lot more testing and you know switching over. And I'm probably going yeah, to you be uh, you know trying out some more Arch in the future. Uh, it's been. Oh, a, I'm sorry, that broke up. Uh, can you say that again? Um, no. And so <laughs> so this is actually interesting because I I haven't used Arch in many years. And I used to actually be a contributor to uh, Intergos. Uh, so when Intergos uh, ended and Endeavor came around, I was very interested to see what happens with that. And I've actually contributed to, Inter to Endeavor a little bit. 
and I wanted to see like what's been going on through that. So I've been testing on Endeavor uh, for the past couple weeks, and I think that it's pretty solid. And I might be switching into it to see, you know, if I can turn it into my primary. Um, because I, I, I'm a fan of Arch, but I never really want to go through the process of installing it anymore. Uh, and this way I can, yeah. And this way I can do it a lot easier and a lot faster. So it's, um, I, I'm very much interested in checking out, like see how far that Endeavor can, I can take Endeavor. Cause I've actually already switched Endeavor from the XFC stand, stand, uh, the default to Plasma mm-hmm. and it works quite well. So uh, I'm excited. Endeavor is incredible, and what I have found, the thing that makes me like Endeavor the most, besides being fantastic software where developers listen very actively and implement mm-hmm. things, is I can send my bugs through Michael. He gets them to the developers, <laughs> which saves me like 20 minutes, and then they implement it like within a week. So he's got some in here with them, which is pretty awesome. That did technically happen once. I was like... I was like, hey, I need the system D thing fixed with Endeavor. And he's like, I said, here's the screenshot of it messing up. He's like, I got you. All right, they're updating it next week. I'm like, yes, this is awesome. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, so that happens. So I'm, I'm looking forward to see what I can do with uh, like the new system. And hopefully it'll run smoother than the, like, the, to be fair, this is a, a really old install. So, and I've also gone through multiple upgrades. So like it, it's, 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 it's time. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. So, Eric, um, I've seen on YouTube you've had a pretty busy week. So, tell us about it. I have. You know, Zeb, I was just, I was so jealous of your time with Serge that I I had to find a way to get him to spend some time with me. So, I said, you know, (laughs) how about we install Slackware? That sounds like fun. Wow. Yeah. And actually, he reached out to me on one of my other videos and had just said, can we do a Slackware i3 install, which is interesting. So, um, yeah, we, we did that on Friday and, you know, I, I, he's amazing. He has just a, a wealth of knowledge and it was a real experience and uh, pleasure to sit there and learn about Slackware because I think, uh, for being the oldest Linux distribution, oldest active Linux distribution, it doesn't get a lot of you know, attention or, you know, it's, it's. Uh, in my opinion, having gone through it, I thought it was a lot easier to install and work with than Gentoo. And I'm not saying that as a knock against Gentoo. I'm just saying like it is it is a structure that seems like you could actually easily deploy and work with if you had the, the need f- to do so. Um, but yeah, anyway, is this was, really a desktop use case or is this more just for servers type of thing in your in your mind? I think if you had a, if you were a sysadmin, and you had a desktop that you de- relied on to be secure and stable in order to manage your systems, then yeah, in that case, I would say it's a it would be a good fit for a, a desktop operating system. Um, if you had a very lightweight system that was dedicated to a very specific set of tasks, that would also be a good use case. Any place where you just wanted to sit down and specifically, you know, uh, install random package A B C it's probably not going to be your best experience just simply because you have to go through all of the manual checking for dependencies and things like that. And um, so that was episode one. We're going to do another one where he actually wants to take me through some of the other things like slapped get and some other ways to manage packages in the system itself. And we'll probably do that uh, maybe this Friday or somewhere sometime soon coming up to just sort of follow up on that. But uh, besides that, yeah, I've been really enjoying making videos and streaming and just sort of getting out there and being a part of the community. And um, you also have a Linux spotlight out there, which is Rocco from big daddy Linux did a spotlight on you, which was very 
fantastic. You are somebody who, well, you jumped in just now to host last minute with us uh, because Noah found WSL. And so he's been working on it all week. So he's no longer a Linux fan anymore. So we had to kick him <laughs> off the show. Um, and you volunteered last minute to come in and place, but you really are somebody who, and, and I think the spotlight helps show that. You can see in the comments, so many people feel that way a pillar to the community. You're just such a kind individual. You've always been a part of, for a long time, the Destination Linux community. Everything that comes out of your mouth is nice. It's kind. It's, you know, reassuring. And I think people, if they want to get to know Eric a little more, should definitely check out that spotlight. And you also have your own YouTube channel out there, which you're exploring stuff uh, mm -hmm. like Slackware out. So people need to check that out as well. But thank you for hosting Last Minute again, Eric. I love being here with you guys. You know that. Awesome. And, and a, qu a quick tip for working with Serge, you know he's very methodical. So when you're going type, type, enter, type, type, enter, type, type, enter, enter, enter. Oh, sorry, I've just installed Fluxbox, not i3. <laughs> you have to wait for him to say, press enter. <laughs> yeah, Zeb, I saw your comment as we were streaming. Well, so I wasn't watching the comments because it was too intense, right? But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. when I happened to look over, I saw that you had said, slow down, listen to, Se <laughs> listen to Serge. <laughs> But what was really fascinating, and it proves that he's not just a Google person. He knows his stuff. He went, oh, that's okay. You've installed Fluxbox. We'll get i3 on in a minute. And then he went through a different process of getting i3 on. And again, he showed two or three different ways that you can use these packages that are on Slack. to. Because one of the things that I don't like about these compiling bits of software is you say, right, I want this. So what is it made up of? What if it's a dependency? It's okay, so his dependency is this. Go and look up that. Does that have any dependencies? And before you know it, you're down a rabbit hole of about 14 layers of dependencies, and you've only covered the first product. So the guys over at Slack have developed something that says, what does this product need? Let me check all the dependencies, create a list for you, and put them in the right order. So you don't get dependency hell of when you sometimes get, oh, this is going to be ordered before that. That's going to be, you've put this in the wrong position. And within... 30 seconds, he had i3 installed. Yeah. It really felt as though all of the arguments that could be made about how it's hard to me, oh, Slackware's hard, you know. Uh, I think that what he's going to show me, especially next time, is that that's really not true if you are willing to take a little extra time to do it. And honestly, it's amazing to me to see the amount of dependencies that one small package has. Right. And then you start making the connections of like, well, how is the software working on my system? Uh, I mean, if you want to learn, everyone says, well, install Arch, you know, because Arch gives you sort of, you know, you're seeing more of the nuts and bolts and configuration. But something like Slackware, and as you've certainly learned with Gentoo, you're going to learn the guts of your system in a way that you couldn't possibly ever do otherwise. Right. Well, Cubicle Nate in our chat says, Surge Fellow is wicked smart. He is a Linux Jedi master for sure. So I, I can't disagree with that. However, I think it's important to note that we are four of the greatest minds ever discussing Linux. So I'm sure Surge, after working with Zeb, knows that at least one of us is just incredibly smart. Right, Zeb? Is that what he'd say about us after installing? Probably says I can't type because he's always correcting me typos about one second. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I realize I've spelt that wrong, sir. Just give me a second to, you know, to, to put the P instead of the O or whatever. He picks up on stuff. We'll get so, you some Mavis Beacon on Linux. I got, I got nervous. You <laughs> <laughs> get nervous. It's like being in front of the, of the school teacher. When's he going to come and wrap me knuckles with a little ruler or something? 
So, yeah, well, thanks very much indeed for that. And uh, sounds like we've all had a good week. Yep. All right, so now we're going to get into some community feedback. And I'm very excited about this because we put a call out last week to see if some individuals would send us some video reviews. And we have that. We'll save that for the last um, piece of community feedback. So we'll go through some emails here first. Uh, we got an email from Alfredo. He says, hello, everyone. First, I'd like to thank you for the wealth of information you guys provide every week in an easy-to-understand format. Not only are you informative, but also entertaining as H-E double sticks. I especially enjoy the trolling and the way you guys drum on those ongoing jokes. Now for the question, have any of you ever set up ZoneMinder for security cameras? We have a security camera at work that use a commercial suite called Genetech, but it tends to freeze quite frequently lately. Through the Genetech software, we can monitor, record the camera streams, and manipulate maglock doors. What if any other suggestions do you have? Love the show, Alfredo. So this would have been perfect for Noah because he spends so much time there. But uh, like I said, Noah has switched to a Windows subsystem for Linux and couldn't be on the show. So with that, Eric or Zeb or Michael, any ideas or thoughts on the cameras? I honestly have not messed with them. So ZoneMinder, I haven't used this, these, any particular cameras in general, but the ZoneMinder is, um, is, is an interesting project and it does quite a few things. Um, I, I think there's actually also a fork of ZoneMinder. Uh, I don't remember what it's called, but um, it, it's, they're ver- it's a very good project and it does give you a ton of options. But in terms of like modifying the maglock dorgs, I don't bring, I'm pretty sure it doesn't do that. And I don't know of a project that can do that. But there, the, but ZoneMinder is really cool in the sense that it, does, it has motion detection and all kinds of stuff for like security system. And it is a, an open source project and it does work very well for that purpose. But I don't think that it's a straight one-to-one replacement for Genetech. Um, but if you if we want to try it out for the security or the security camera structure, I think it is definitely worth checking out. Uh, and and ZoneMinder is available in with everything. It's available yeah. for Ubuntu. It's available for the Raspberry Pi. You can pretty much install it and play with it and see if it works as an alternative for you on anything, even a $35 Raspberry Pi, apparently you can install it on. So. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it's definitely worth checking out for the, for the camera aspect to it. And don't, if, if you know of, if you are any audience members, if you know of like an option for the uh, maglock door control or another alternative to zone miners, just let us know in the comments or in the email at comments at destinationlinux.org. And uh, we will uh, send them, send that information on to uh, Alfredo about it because it, it zone miner is really cool, but it might not be exactly what he's looking for. So if you know what he might be looking for, please let us know. We had a email from Nicholas. I was listening to episode 133 where you compared the Librem five and the pine phone where you focus on the price versus the spec for the two phones. Sadly, I think you miss an important point of the Librem price, which is open source firmware versus the ethically, the ethical history of all winner. I would have enjoyed listening to your opinion on this part. And I think that's a fair point. Uh, certainly, sort of. most, well, <clears throat> I think most people do wonder what's in the firmware because that is sort of the s- sitting below anything that you have access to. And certainly there are things in there that would be against security, privacy, and all of the ideals that Librem is, is looking to, uh, you know, to achieve. So I, I think it's a fair point. There's not really a way for the Librem 5 to be an open source firmware phone. That's just not a thing. And uh, it's because like there, there's aspects where they can make it more open friendly, but they can't make it fully open. So 
the neither the Pine phone or the Libra 5 have the ability to do it to be a completely open firmware phone because they have to use uh, hardware and, and certifications from other things. For example, uh, the baseband is separated from the from the uh, the rest of the system, but that baseband can't be open source, and mm-hmm. that's true for the Pine phone and the Libra 5. And it's also true for the HDMI. Being able to use the HDMI protocol, you actually have to have a certification that is a non-open for, for a structure of inter- implementing. So, in order to use HDMI and using over that 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 protocol, you it can't be open in that aspect. So, neither one of them can be open at that point. However, the the argument against All Winner is totally fair because All Winner has known for a very long time for violating the GPL and all kinds of stuff. So I'm not necessarily a fan of all winter for sure, but in terms of like the actual openness, they are very similar because they both do the separate uh, baseband structure and they both have the privacy stuff. Uh, So uh, that's my opinion on the on the topic. I I think that they, that neither one of them can really be fully open. And I actually like the way that pine is doing it where they're talking about, here's the features we're offering, but we're not claiming to be a fully open phone. And not that uh, not to keep harping on this, but Dalton did a really good job last week in the after show, actually showing and explaining that component specifically that Mike was talking about, where it has to be self-contained. It has its own firmware. It has its own, and you're essentially just calling to that piece. So you couldn't, because of that, ever say that you have a fully open system. But it's it, he goes into great detail and explains it very eloquently in, in a way that I'm not going to. Yeah, so there are two controversies, just to make sure, because we'll get a comment saying, you only talked about the one GPL. The other controversy was for a backdoor controversy back in the day for uh, All Winter as well, which we kind of heard the same thing with Huawei. And then there was the big scare where everybody said every Intel and every AMD coming out of China has a backdoor in it. And there's a lot of this type of stuff going around um, and accusations out there. I don't think that was ever confirmed. In fact, in that specific case with All Winter, I believe it was part of the development a development kit during a debugging process in which uh, there was a way to to install apps through a backdoor method or something along those lines with that. But you know, I don't think there's any perfect solution at the end of the day yet for what we're talking about. Even on the CPU market, a lot of these companies, first of all, all of them are pretty much built and manufactured and made in China. Um, so if, if you're worried about that backdoor thing, you should worry about every single piece of equipment probably you have in your home. Uh, I hope at some point, and I think everybody's excited for the day where we have fully open source hardware and specs out there. And there's news that we'll get into here about companies that are working on just that. But as of right now, we have to do the best we can with the hardware that's out there, the software that's available, and trying to sandbox the stuff as much as possible so that even if that stuff did become true at some point, you would have the ability to kind of circumvent it. Yeah, and I think it's great for that both the, the Pine and the, the Purism team are you know taking that first step to get to the open source firmware and stuff like that, like trying to do as open as possible, even if they right. can't be fully open. So, and we still want to give credit to them for you know putting that attempt out there. Hey guys, so um, yeah, when I started uh, using Linux, I was actually introduced to Vim and I liked the ability to switch modes a lot and especially the ability to um, use a sequence of keys for shortcuts. So for example, I could press like space WQ and I could quit the window, for example, instead of having to mess with the control shift or whatever. 
So I was just wondering if there's an option in open source or any Linux distro that implements this kind of idea or provides the ability to um, press a sequence of keys and have shortcuts basically associated with that. Um, aside from that, I want to thank you for uh, all the great shows that you provide and all the work you do and uh, keep it up. See ya. So there's one answer here. It's called i3. It has all the shortcuts that you'll ever need in your life, although it's got like Vim, you're going to have to take some time to get used to it. But since you like Vim, you've gotten used to those shortcuts. i3 should not be uh, a very much of a challenge for you at all. But you can do everything from opening terminals, moving windows around, closing windows, opening menus, launching things and keyboard shortcuts. All of that is can be done through i3's settings and setting up keys to basically handle anything you want from tabbing, floating, um, quitting programs, all of that. So to me, it's i3. That's the same answer Michael, Eric, and Zeb gave. So thank you so much for... <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'll let you guys... The difference, the difference is if you are somebody who does not have that abnormal thought processes, <laughs> I'm quite sure that a lot of the distributions out there will give you the facility to create those shortcuts for yourself. And the only caveat I would bring to the conversation is be very careful with the key combinations that you're going to be choosing. You've got to make sure that the distro you land on, what are they currently offering, offering you shortcut-wise? Because I don't think there's a distro out there that doesn't say you can do something via the keyboard rather than the mouse. So wherever you land and... Different distributions will bring easier methods of handling those shortcuts. I'm pretty fair to say that most Linux distributions will give you that option. Just learn what they give already and don't suddenly put something down that you think, yeah, I want it to do that, and then moan that you now can't do this because you've nicked the shortcuts. So just be very careful and selective in what your shortcuts are that you choose. Yeah, there's there's quite a few uh, situations where you have to. I, I think the key, what he's what he's asking for is the keyboard sh sequence shortcuts allows you to like hit one, activate one specific shortcut that's like super specific, and then had as after that hit another key that allows you to be more specific about what you wanted to do. And I think that that's a really interesting idea, and I would say that Plasma can do it because it kind of can but it doesn't seem like it can that well these days. KDE4 used to have the ability to do it, I know, but it seems that there's there's it can and then it kind of can't. So like there's there's actually built-in sequence shortcuts into Plasma that you can do. So like you can uh, edit your desktop, uh, I think it's uh, alt D then D and it allows you to add widgets and that works but if you want to customize and build those specific things, it doesn't. It does. It's not really that easy to do. Um, maybe I just couldn't find it or whatever. But uh, there are other options to do it, like XPy bind. It's XPYBIND, and it's a it allows you to build scripts in Python that allows you to, when you hit those keys, activate some function. Now this could be done through the command line, or it could be done through, uh, you know, specific. Uh, scripts that will launch and that kind of thing but that like that one i don't know if x maybe x keybind as well but uh, x pi bind for sure can do it but you would have to build the scripts for you to do it so, so some plasma can't and i3 can thank you plasma can ish <laughs>
But I think that all kind of goes down to what is exposed via the OS itself, right? What right. Ca- what can you actually bind keys and actions to? And that's going to vary depending on the system itself. So KWIN and KDE is going and Plasma is going to give you a certain subset of the functionality that you can hook things to. Gnome's going to do a different one. And so uh, depending on your system, you're going to have different capabilities. And I3, you know, so just stepping back from, from that thought, so not only do you have this underlying system, but then the applications themselves have certain uh, right. captured certain keys. And so now you've got layers of this that can be difficult to determine why is something capturing. I was trying to help someone yesterday with why is my middle mouse click pasting? You know, and I thought, well, it's plasma, so it's got to be just that desktop setting where you remove. It's a that. default in all of Linux for some reason, right? <clears throat> so then it was, yeah, exactly. So then it was like, okay, well, we took away that factor, so now there's got to be something else, and it ended up that we found a utility, like Michael's saying, to to actually trap that event and and stop it from firing. But I'm going to have to say that I agree with Ryan from the standpoint that i3, because it is literally just a text file with the, with individual lines that you're saying map this key very explicitly to this action, it's easy to see because it's in one place and you can clearly define what you want to happen and how to have it happen versus something like a KDE Plasma or some other system where you've got multiple panels to go through and settings and things like that. So it could be challenging to get the settings the way you want them to be, but I'm glad that you're you see the value in it because I'm, I certainly am one of those people that use the keyboard a lot in day to day. And Zeb, that also kind of reminded me of software testing as well. And like, how do you script events of where you're clicking a button or moving something? Um, you know. Well, there's also another thing about the like the sequence shortcuts. I I recently learned that I always called them like a key sequence shortcut, and it's also known as mnemonic for some reason and cording for some reason and accelerating shortcuts, which is my opinion. That's a redundant term because you're, that's the whole point of shortcuts is to accelerate the speed of your, anyway, there are so many different terms for this thing. So searching for it is very difficult to do. And also inside of the conversations, you'll see people using different terms for different things of what it is. Um, but the, there also are functions in all of Linux applications. Um, at, well, maybe not all of Linux applications, but most, almost all. Well, you can actually use uh, Alt and then a key on the top of your main menu that mm-hmm. will be like, for example, you know the, the file edit view menu that's on a very on like a lot of different applications. If you hit Alt F, it will drop into that menu, and then you can use whatever key whatever letter is underlined on that particular val- or like value for that that menu and that will activate the function of whatever that is so i use it all the time in for like live where i want to delete guides that i've i've set up you can delete all guides by hitting alt i g g and it's a, re- a really quick sequence structure and that ability of having those sequences are in and are in basically every application including the ability to manage your windows like if you wanted to like edit the window menus like uh, alt space on basically everything except plasma to activate the menu to <laughs> um to like modify like maximize minimize move all that stuff is available there and you can use key so- uh, shortcuts sequencing there 
and it's really cool. I do love the sequencing thing, and I wish more systems, more DEs had the ability to modify this in that way. Uh, but it is, you know, those things are are there as, as available for you if you want to use them. They are pretty cool. Um, so one of if, our patrons, Michael Gert, says an auto key besides hotkeys, you can also use abbreviation. Maybe that's yes. an awesome option you can run scripts as well as phrases rather the auto key is cool because it that's a great tip uh auto key is really really awesome because it allows you to type in a couple letters and then hit tab and it will just output whatever it's going to be putting uh but you can also do it for shortcutting as well uh but yep. that's typically auto key is typically for that purpose but it also has extra features as well for setting it up i haven't tested auto key for the sequencing uh, but I, that's a very good uh, idea. So I'm, I'm going to test it after the show. Thank you so much, Ricardo, for sending in our first video. Yeah, this is our awesome. first video that we've received. So, Michael, what if they want to send us some more? We want well, more. Yeah, we want we know as many as you, as many as you want to give. That's I mean, it doesn't have to be a video like uh, Ricardo did, where he's actually on screen. You can do other things like be on a, and use a desktop thing, show us your desktop, that kind of thing. Just want feedback and however you want to do it, that'd be great. And if you'd like to send us a video, uh, you can you send us for whatever type of content you want. But you can post it on YouTube, you can post it on PeerTube or BitChute or anything, and you can do it as unlisted if you don't want to have it public on your channel. And then you can just link us that video in an email, and we will if if we will likely like we did with. Ricardo, We'll put it in the episode, in the video and talk about whatever topics you want to discuss. Uh, so just send us that link. And also, uh, just like uh, just like Ricardo, for if you get on the ep- this episode, we're going to be sending you some swag, some like DL Swick stickers and st- stuff like that. So if you'd like to get that swag, you can send us your address and uh, that and all the inf- contact information inside of your in the email that you send us with the video. And uh, you can do that. Send those video links and the address stuff if you want the swag to uh, comments at destinationlinux.org. And just to be clear, that's only the first 10 videos, so get your video in now to get that swag. Great point. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 a month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents. That's 0.7 per hour. That's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for one month free with a $50 credit by going to do.co forward slash DL. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that £50 credit by going to do.co slash DL. And we'd like to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. And make sure you use that link so you know they came. you came from Destination Linux to DigitalOcean there, that helps us out, helps them out as well. And just a word that I do use DigitalOcean for my own production services, and it is a fantastic service that has nothing to do with this show or... Everybody loves DigitalOcean. That's why we love them as a sponsor, because it's like, you want us to talk about DigitalOcean? Because we already have been using it for years. Yeah, we want to talk about it anyway, so that's great. Right, right. And also, uh, we're actually going to be starting some some new stuff and using DigitalOcean to do that, so we'll let you know more of that in a future episode. 
Okay, so moving on to some distro news and um, some more Raspberry Pi information as it now runs Scratch 3. So, so the, cool. the Raspberry Pi has seamlessly limitless applications for automation, robotics, general desktop computing, but it couldn't run Scratch. That is until now. Now, this for me is the, the astonishing bit. The, the Raspberry Pi Foundation, in partnership with MIT. Now, being a Brit, one of the sort of mythical things you hear about yeah. is MIT, the university that has this complete brain dump of the most intelligent, technical people to pass through through college in America. So to hear that they've been helping the Raspberry Pi Foundation, for me, is fantastic. And they found a way to get Scratch 3 working on the Raspberry Pi 4 device. So Scratch is an innovative tool that allows you to create interactive stories, games, animations, and teach coding to kids and adults alike through Lego-type drag-and-drop command sets. Now, there's a, there's a whole load of other stuff that gets into more technical detail, but uh, Ryan, you've played with a lot of Raspberry yes. Pi stuff. Is, is this something that you can get excited about? I am so excited about this. In fact, we get some questions every now and then from the community asking, how can I get my kids into coding? How can I get my kids into Linux? And we, you know, Noah's done it a lot with his children. I have gotten my kids. They all run Linux on their machines. Uh, so, and my kids, and my son is seven and my daughter just turned five. So, you know, they are at the very beginning of their computer journey, but they're already faster than most adults in using a lot of this technology here. Um, but Scratch 3 is quite amazing because, number one, getting it to run on a Pi, and I showed this to my son this week to see Gage's interest before I went and set it all up, just makes it that much easier for you to um, you know, implement from a cost-effective standpoint on in something that kids can play with and utilize. But the most interesting part of it is what you can do with the drawings, animations, video, almost like video sequences that you create all by taking drag and drop commands. When they talk about the Lego-like interface, what they mean is you take a command that says creates a loop. Maybe you want an animation where you first drag a spin in because you want your picture to spin and then you drag a loop because you want it to spin six times or something along those lines. It's all click and drag there, and then the bits fit together, and then the kid hits play, and it does the sequence for them. Then the cool part about this is they can share it with the community. So you can go see what other kids are out there creating, what they've developed. You can modify and, and mess with their code or you know create your own, and they could work with yours. So it creates this kind of community there. For kids, and I say kids a lot here, but honestly, uh, as an adult, I want to play with this a lot too because clicking and dragging code and just doing fun things like that to me is just an awesome thing. So the neat thing about getting it on the Pi to take it to the next level is, of course, you have the GPIO pins. So now you can take this click and drag code, right? It's meant to do simple tasks, but actually you can do some pretty advanced things with it. And now you can start attaching sensors or LEDs and other devices to the Raspberry Pi, mm -hmm. taking Scratch to a whole new level. So this is a perfect partnership from an MIT standpoint because these are things you can't really as easily do on a full desktop machine that you can do with the Raspberry Pi to start adding some additional functionality into it. Maybe now when you, you know, say a certain word into a microphone or whatever, it initiates the loop. There are all kinds of things that could spawn off from this 
to make it even you know more yeah. interactive than before and get your kids and adults because I'm just a big kid into this type of stuff. That's a great point. I actually was playing with the Scratch a little when they first announced it, and it's really interesting because it's like it's 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 a visual way of programming. And it's a it's a really great way of getting kids to, you know, to learn programming if they wanted to, uh, because it allows you to do like like the animations and stuff. You can actually do it where you can have this these animations interacting with like a video, so they can record a video and then they can apply the animations on top of it and combine it all together to make a like a composite video. And it's really it's really cool that all all the stuff you can do with Scratch. Yeah, in the Raspberry Pi 4 device, they recommend for this. I think it can work on a couple others, but they specifically recommend the 4. So for those of you, uh, I got an email from the community. I got my Raspberry Pi 4. What can I do with this thing that I can't do with the other Pis? It's not a whole lot. It's just a little bit faster in a lot of ways, but this would be one application where that would be a perfect setup for your Raspberry Pi 4 is to put Scratch 3 on there. And, you know, like I said, we talk about it for kids, but honestly, if you're an adult, you can have just as much fun as a kid with this thing. So that oh, would yeah. be one application to check out. Yeah. I think they also said it needs to, it'd be the best example. I mean, the best, the Raspberry Pi 4 is because if you get the 2 gig version or the 4 gig version, you have a better experience. It's still possible on the on the regular 1 gig and also the older versions. Uh, but they think, they say that, that you would have a better experience overall if you got the 2 gig or higher. So right. it says that they're, they are partnering up. Uh, any word on how to get this? Is this at their site or... Yeah, you can go to uh, scratch.mit.edu and just download it right there. Okay, excellent. So System76, I have one of their laptops now, although I, I, I didn't get the brand new one. I got one used, but I still have a System76. I can make that claim. I feel officially geeked out now. And they are doing more cool things that we've come to expect now. It seems every couple of weeks we hear something awesome. Of course, we don't want to forget the work they did with System D, so the Ryzen 3rd gen works. They're always going to have a special place in my heart for that alone. But now they want to make things easier from a firmware perspective as well, not just for those of us that have a System 76. See, I now get to be in that club, but everybody else as well. So System76 has had for a long time, if you buy one of their computers, you go into Pop! OS, they have a firmware, GUI-based firmware updater. Mm-hmm. Now, this is becoming more and more important with hardware manufacturers. Honestly, flashing BIOS and updating firmware on hardware, and I grew up with this stuff, was not as popular as it is today. I don't know if that's easier or because hardware manufacturers are just getting that much sloppier that you have to keep doing the updates. But either way, it's a thing that you need to do uh, is check out firmware and updates that are available for firmware because now they're even including security patching. So you're upgrading your security of your hardware as well as the security of your OS. You got to patch it. Firmware GUI, uh, firmware updates are part of that. So what they have done is they've now taken their System76 firmware GUI and made it available for any Ubuntu or Debian-based distribution out there. So we know Pop! OS is Ubuntu-based, so that's why they're focusing their attention there. So if you're on Debian as well, this will work. But what it does is for everybody who's not a hardware expert, creates a nice little GUI where it'll go out there using the FWP, UPD services. Instead of having to run those commands individually through a terminal and figure it out, you got a GUI, it goes out and searches, says, hey, you have an update for one of your hardware pieces, your motherboard, GPU, whatever it is, and updates it. Now, this is all 
while this GUI is really cool and appreciate System76 making it available for everyone, this is all the work of LVFS, the Linux vendor firmware service that created the partnerships to begin with to allow us to get the firmware updates in Linux. Otherwise, you'd have to be a dual booter like Noah, and nobody wants to, to be there. <laughs> so uh, they created the partnerships with Dell, HP, ThinkPad, Intel, Logitech, basically all of the major hardware manufacturers out there to get these updates into Linux. And so now you have System76 basically creating a nice little GUI on top of it so people can get those updates easier. Yeah. I thought this was awesome. I mean, it's really, it's, it's really awesome because it's, it, you know, it used to be torture to update your, your BIOS and firmware and stuff. And now mm-hmm. it's gotten a lot easier thanks to the LVFS, the Linux vendor, Linux vendor firmware service. Uh, but that those, that system requires a, a front end to be able to make it easier mm-hmm. for the user. So the service is available, but it's not really meant to be a GUI based anyway. So they, it needs someone else to build a GUI for the utilizing of the service and that's already available in gnome software and for the uh, kde discover but if you're using a distribution that doesn't use either one of those you wouldn't really have a solution so this is really great for those distributions that are not using either the gnome software or the the kde discover that they could actually implement this in their distro and have a gui based firmware updating thing for them and that's that's fantastic yep yeah, I agree. The consistency of using a single front end would be great and something that works across all of that spectrum of Ubuntu-based distributions, particularly if it's something that they could, that a, any distro could include as a, as a service that just, you know, is there. Um, you're right. You know, if you're running XFC or some, you know, other desktop, you're not going to have that software center and you're not going to get those updates. Right. And I will also say that from uh, Dell supports uh, LVFS and so, um, I have on several occasions gotten notifications from the GNOME Software Center and also from Discover. And it is sort of like magic, honestly, given yeah. how difficult it used to be to go and hunt those down and apply them. And now it's, you know, it just, it, it works and it works very well. Yeah. And it's, it's also worth noting that while it's currently uh, Ubuntu and Debian based, it's it's open source available on GitHub. So that can be ported to other distributions. I'm not really sure if they're going to be porting it themselves or they're just going to be allowing the community to do so but they did also make it where it's toolkit agnostic so while by default they're using gtk which makes sense because they're shipping pop os with gnome so it makes sense right. that they would use gtk uh, but they did mm-hmm. make it where it's possible to build out uh, another version of gui in like Qt or something else if the if the community wanted to do so so the code is available on github so if someone wants to port it to their distribution or to Qt or something that's available too i was gonna say what i find quite amusing about this was this sort of topic came up a couple of months ago and there was a oh my god are you crazy you're going to let discover update the system bios and yet now because it's come out from system 76 and they've made it work and integrated it into gnome now people aren't so panicky about it working in discover as well so how does that work well the the issue is that discover has had a, a reputation for a long time of having you know some issues and i think that's why people were worried about that and I think that the latest versions of Discover, like with the 5.15 and 5.16, those versions of Discover have been pretty solid. Uh, but if you use Discover back in the 5.11 days or, beyond, or before, 
um, it it was not a very you know pleasant. Discover experience. just locks up in the middle of your firmware update. Yeah, yeah and then your systems <laughs> break. Yeah, that that could that could have possibly happened back in the day. But that's I mean, yeah. I, actually I don't even think they had the firmware stuff back then anyway. But I think that's where the the issue that people had with the Discover getting it. Uh, but I think that overall, because they're using. Uh, they've actually been doing this for a while with their own packaging, with their own System76 firmware packaging. Uh, they've got experience with that, and also making it support the uh, the LVFS, which is a completely separate project that does that makes sure that the updates are working well with the firmware, and also mm-hmm. that that service uh, project has uh, manufacturing like partnerships that they, they actually have members that are like Lenovo is a part of it, and they see that you're getting the the, the firmware directly from those companies when you use this service that we're we're at the point now where we're not as afraid to update the bios or the firmware anymore as we used to be and i mean used to be not only was it difficult you were kind of afraid to update your bios back in the day because it's just, still in me to this day because there was yeah, this, yeah. this fear of death that was put <laughs> into me that if there's a power outage in the middle of a firmware update you've just lost your whole motherboard, right? I mean, it will take stuff out. So um, I've honestly, I I don't think I've ever actually had an issue where I've worked a firmware out there, but that fear was so embedded in all of us who've been in technology for a long time back in the day. Uh, BIOS was not easily recoverable um, and you really would basically do permanent damage. Your only option would be to send it back to the manufacturer if it was still under warranty. But things have changed quite a bit. And like I said, we're seeing it kind of be a part of the update process nowadays it's like uh update your software os and your os and patch it and then patch your, your hardware as well so it's good that linux has an option here it, it's a good thing because there are a lot of hardware-based vulnerabilities that software mm-hmm. can only do so much to mitigate so having this available certainly increases security in some cases but i also think when we talked about pine earlier when we were talking about a hardware manufacturer executing a product System76, I think, is also a great example of a hardware company taking mm-hmm. Linux and then those few pieces, power management, the video drivers, the firmware updates, the things that matter to a hardware company providing a good product to their customers and support to their customers, things that no distribution needs to worry about because they don't have those problems. And you see System76 really stepping up and putting emphasis on those areas. And it is, I mean, it's, this is amazing. It's just one thing after another. They keep coming out with these, these changes. And you're seeing Pop! OS become popular well beyond System76 hardware because of these types of refinements. Yeah. And it's actually kind of funny that really? you mentioned that because Pop! OS, was when it first announced that people were you know, making fun of it, like, yeah, System76 is going to make a dish, another distro. We need another distro or whatever. And they have done so much that they've proven they've done so much in that, pro- like, by building Pop! OS, they've built the firmware stuff. They've actually now have a version of their laptops that are running Core Boot, and they've done they've done so many, like, custom things. They were the first people to do the Ryzen 3 support, and, like, there's they've done because so much. Because they talk much. the talk and walk the walk, right? They're, yeah, they're not exactly. just out there saying... Uh, hey, go support open source and then releasing a bunch of products that only work with their stuff that's closed source. Mm-hmm. They're, they're actually open sourcing everything they're doing. They're, they're basically, they're walking the walk out there. And that's why if you're not an advanced Linux user now, the go-to that I give people and the, what my kids run right now is Pop! OS. I think it's the greatest example for Linux desktop out there for individuals who not only are, are inexperienced with Linux, their first experience with Linux being Pop! OS is a fantastic one, 
but also experienced ones that uh, users who don't want to mess with installers and all that stuff like you have to in Arch. Pop! OS is, is up there. It's probably one of my favorite distros of the year right now. I hope yeah. they keep it up. Yeah, I agree. It, it had a certain charm to it that I think surprised a lot of people. I saw people using Pop! in the last few months that I would assume never would even be interested in it because it's just like you said, it's a, oh, it's just yet another Ubuntu. Why do we need yet another? And there's something about it. You know, you run it and it runs so well on your hardware and it has all the right options. And you think mm -hmm. somebody put some real thought into this. Yeah, they yep. polished it quite well. Like the the, the, the efforts that they took in their, they're putting their hardware to make sure that it's seamless with the Pop! OS, you see that that effort is there. And you also get the benefit, even if you're not using their hardware, by using Pop! OS. And yeah. now, like, the, the fact you, you, know, you brought up the, the fact that they're a hardware company, they're, they're building these things to benefit their customers, but also they're releasing these things to benefit everyone. And that is a fantastic steward of the community. Yeah, and just to put a final uh, point on that, Tiderman in our chat says, can't stand GNOME. But using Pop! OS, I have to say, really, really impressed with it. And that was kind of my experience when I put Pop! OS for the first time. I'm like, I'm not a big fan of GNOME. It's fine for people who love it, but I've never been a big fan. But I like Pop! OS's implementation of GNOME. I kind of dig it. And that's kind of an interesting thing that they turn you, uh, turn a lot of people who typically don't like GNOME's workflow into believers. So that speaks to the quality of the product right there. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a very good point, too. They need to make a Plasma version, but still, it's a good version yeah, of them. that's true. So another piece of software news this week is that OBS Studio 24 released a new candidate um, and it's got the following features. So we know that OBS is a very important tool in the open source ecosystem and it's about to get even better because OBS Studio 24 release candidate one change notes have been released, which give us a glimpse into what's coming up in the near future. So the things that we can look forward to include Pausing and unpausing while you're recording, allowing for seamless on-the-fly removal of video segments. So, Michael, no more excuses. We want DL out on a Tuesday, please. Yeah, because <laughs> I agree, Zeb. For you, it's just yeah. Well, um, we'll see. Added an option to automatically adjust the bitrate. So, no more of these shenanigans at the beginning of the show. Can you say something? Can you say something? OBS will sort it all out for you. Yeah. Added ability to select multiple sources on the preview by box selection. They've added the ability to create. Michael, did you write them a wish list? And then they just sent this whole thing in because it feels like sounds, it. This sounds really, really good. Do you want to give us, from your perspective, what's the best thing that's come out of this release? Wait, candidate? before we get into that, you are on to something, Zeb. No more excuses, Michael. Editing should now take five to ten minutes max. I wish that's how that worked. The show comes out on Tuesday now. I, so wish, I wish that's how that worked. So here's oh. the problem with that. One, this is an RC. It's not fully released, so I'm not putting a production just yet. But Does it, it matter what happened earlier? That's a fair point. Any worse. Fair point. Um <laughs> for those who who didn't who don't 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 uh didn't see the first part we actually had some little bit of issues it wasn't OBS's fault but uh, I fixed it so it's fine now but there's there's um there's a lot of stuff in this release that is that's coming that I am really happy to see the one of the things that doesn't seem like that big of a deal but uh, the ability to select multiple sources on the preview box is a is it doesn't seem like a big deal but the problem that you have if you do stuff like like we do where they have this ridiculous uh you know lots of scenes and lots of sources 2.2 million scenes or whatever you have set up it's, not, it's yeah. not that bad it's like 40 but still it's kind of a lot for most people who ever use obs oh. 
40 yeah. million yeah yeah 40, <laughs> million. <laughs> 40 million anyway um but it, one of the things that it's, it's it's difficult is that you have to move individual pieces at a time so if, once you have them separate to like each other you have to then like kind of like figure out uh, but this is a lot easier now because you can select different different sources and then move them all at the same time, which is fantastic. Yeah, so OBS, I, I was thinking when I, I was looking through some of these notes, now this is definitely going to be more beneficial to Michael who does a lot of fancier things with OBS than I've ever done. But in doing some live stream streams, being able to change, of course, some of your bit rates and things on the fly, very important. Uh, some of the stuff that they've done here with Restream. But I was thinking about how important OBS is to Linux. You know, it's one of those things that when I think back at my journey into Linux, I was utilizing... OBS over in the Windows environment four years ago. That's what I was using to record. And then there was a tool called XSplit. And I purchased XSplit about the time I started doing the Linux videos for the first time. And I thought, well, I'm not going to get XSplit to work in Linux, so I'll go back to OBS. But it, that was the option. Because without it, what would I have done instead? Used screen recorder and cheese webcam and, you, you know, like... <laughs> This yeah. would not have been a professional option. Without OBS, I probably would have been like, yeah, this Linux thing looks interesting, but they don't even have a good you know, OBS or XSplit or any other option available, so I can't really stay on it with YouTube. So OBS is just such an important application, I think, for Linux, and I'm so happy that they're continuing to make the improvements they are. And Michael, when me and you were talking about when there was a question about what open source product is actually better than its commercial, you know, commercial counterparts, right? right. OBS is one you have to say right away. They yep. beat out XSplit. They beat out every corporate competitor out there when it comes to recording because it's not just the Linux people who utilize it. Every professional streamer out there, Linux or Windows, utilizes OBS for the most part. There's a couple of variations, but pretty much all of them. Yeah, there's a few exceptions, but like the vast majority is OBS based, and and OBS, OBS makes this show possible. It makes the other other stuff we do possible because it it allows you to do so much customization right in the recording, and so much like feature control right in the recording that allows you to save so much time in the editing part. Because otherwise, like editing would take you know three times longer to do. And, you know, we were talking about how this is going to make it easier for us to release the show earlier. And it actually is true. It will. When we get these new versions, the new release comes out, it will make it easier to, to release the show earlier. Look for the show on Monday, folks. This okay, not so that true. early. Oh, not that oh. <laughs> It will be earlier, but it, oh. might, it, it won't be that early. Uh, but, it, I, well, who knows? Who knows? We'll, we'll see after the no, testing No, don't happens. do that to yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's just, who, who knows? Well, let's see what the testing happens. Like, it could be great. It, it might You'll not You'll get work, it but. sometime between Tuesday and Thursday, folks. Yes, that's definitely true either way. But, but I I do think this is really cool that they're adding these features and the ability to like control some like the uh, like the restream stuff. They're doing more integration with the restream stuff. Uh, so people who do like streaming with multiple platforms, that's really cool. Uh, they've actually done uh, better some like support for like de decoding media with like hardware acceleration. Mm -hmm. Like there's so that's much really important. Yes, yeah, super important stuff. You know, by the way, the restream thing that allows you to stream to Mixer, which is owned by Microsoft, and we all know how much Microsoft loves Linux because they just released their new browser and it supports Mac OS, Windows. Oh, it doesn't support Linux. Right, exactly. Because yeah. they care, they care thanks, so much. Thanks, Microsoft. They love us so much. It's, it's okay. We don't need Edge on Linux, Microsoft. You can you can just 
keep that yeah. keep it with Mac. I mean, you can keep. We we don't want it anyway, but that's that's true. I mean, like if 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 you're gonna pretend that you care about it, at least like you know support the stuff that you're making and, and like release. No one's gonna use it even if you did release it on Linux anyway. But at least do it. Like at least pretend. Oh, there would be people who use it. People like Zeb who sell their souls to Google would use it. Okay, that might be too uh, much. When I think about OBS, I put it in that same category of software, like you said, Ryan, where it's basically becomes the the thing you're trying to do, right? If you're going to stream, of course you're going to use OBS. Um, You know, if you're going to do 3D animation, of course you're going to use something like Blender. If you're going and and these open source projects that have become ubiquitous in that area, and it's just a testament to how good it can be, Um, and. So Michael's sort of talking about how, you know, it helps him build the show and how streamers are using it. But really, if you're trying to do any kind of recording, whether it's audio, video, the fact that you can apply filters on, as you're recording, um, the fact that you can set up these scenes, it's so powerful. It can be a little daunting to get started with, but really it is an amazing tool. And to see them just continue, you know, on a regular cadence to put out not just bug fixes, but meaningful new features. It's, it is an impressive project yeah. and one that we all benefit from. Yeah, and also many times they, they'll release something that I don't even remember. Like, I'll, like I'll, I'll be thinking about like, I wish this feature existed and I'll forget about it the, like for, you know, for months. And then all of a sudden they make a release is like, that is what I wanted. That's awesome. And yep. it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of funny because like you said, it like, did I send a list of things that I was looking for? Like I want for them to do it. was like, no, because they don't, I don't have to, because they're already making features that I'm not even one They're They're reading my mind and two, they would never listen to you anyways. Well, I mean, <laughs> shush. And they're also coming up with ideas that I would even th- think of. So this is, it's fantastic. I'm, I'm super yeah. excited to try the new one tonight. And also I, that's a great point about the whole, the OBS is a, is a fundamental piece. Like, what, like most people would use these things for like recording their desktop. And there's some other uh, applications that allow you to record your desktop. And other ones have even some value as well. So like Simple Scrimmage Recorder is fantastic because it's so lightweight and everything. But uh, with OBS, you can do so much that it's like my go-to for anything. Is If I need to record, even if I record video, I'm still going to use OBS because it's so powerful. Yep. So IBM announces they're going to provide some more contributions to open source. So we have Team Green, which Zeb's on. We have Team Red, which I'm on. But what about Team Blue here? I'm going to make my case for Team Blue because IBM has announced they were contributing to the Power ISA. That's the instruction set architecture, along with key hardware reference designs to the open source community. So the announcement came this week at the Open Source Summit North America event. And this means the entire open source community can take the work that's been done on power cores developed by IBM and leverage it across the entire industry. So this is things that would go for, be used for AI, servers, firmware, workstations, deep learning, GPU interconnects, all open source, all accessible out there for people to utilize. The Open Power Foundation has over 350 partners, by the way. So this isn't like we were talking about with IBM uh, releasing some important tools for fighting cancer where it was current. It wasn't some old thing that they threw out there. This is the most current stuff. And their partners are massive companies out there like Dell, IBM, Google, MSI, Next, SUSE, among others, very recognizable working on this. So this is this is where you take hardware, where we were talking earlier about having 
open source hardware actually becoming a reality. And these are the steps that get us there. And IBM has taken that first step, opening their entire architecture for the power cores up to everybody else. So open source hardware, no longer a dream here. This is becoming a reality with some serious partners. Yeah. This makes me really excited to be Team Blue now. Yeah, we we already had uh, <laughs> we already had uh, Risk Five, which is great, and they're working on like a great architecture with the open source everything. But having IBM to open source their power implementation and their power system is such a huge like announcement. Do, do you think this has got anything to do with them having recently bought Red Hat and anything that's coming off from the Red Hat guys rather than IBM? I think these relationships were already in play only because these foundations and things have created such an alliance here that this takes a long time. So my guess is it was probably in the works at that time, but I'm sure those relationships are helping as Noah likes to point out a lot. There's a lot of culture that's coming from Red Hat that's going to Mm -hmm. seep into IBM and you're just seeing IBM really become a hero again. I know this makes my dad happy who started his own business from the home and mm. built and engineered his own computer systems to sell, and everything to him was IBM. When he was growing up, it was all IBM. He loved that company. We sold their computers out there to consumers forever. I know my favorite machine I've talked about before was the IBM Blue Lightning processor, that 75 megahertz beast, and that was just beast. so awesome back in the day. Yeah. And seeing IBM come back around, but not just trying to compete from an Intel AMD standpoint, but going this open source hardware route along with the partners to me is one of the most exciting things to happen out there. It's very innovative. And I, I hope that having it open source and having all those partners out there allow this technology to become accessible to your average consumer in the future as well. Yeah, I think it's, I think there's a lot of potential for it. And I, I can't wait to see what happens with it. So some news out of Mozilla and Google this this week where they're both coming together to protect their users and it's rare to see Google come out so strongly on the side of privacy, but uh, Kazakhstan government is trying to force their citizens to use a certificate so that all of their devices going through the internet authenticate through Kazakhstan itself. And this would allow them to basically bypass the security of the known certificates and things that are they're published out on the web. And Google and Mozilla have come together and said, no, you're not going to do that to our user base. Uh, we protect their privacy. We take this seriously. And so I just wanted to read a couple quotes of, of th- this is this is sort of bizarro land, right? We've got Mozilla Foundation and Chrome having very similar takes on this. So Mozilla said, people around the world trust Firefox to protect them as they navigate the internet, especially when it comes to keeping them safe from attacks like this that undermine their security. We don't take actions like this lightly, but protecting our users and the integrity of the web is the reason that Firefox exists. And you think, of course, that's what Mozilla is going to say because they're strongly behind privacy. But then Chrome comes out, and this is uh, the senior engineering director for Chrome. We will never tolerate any attempt by any organization, government or otherwise, to compromise Chrome users' data. We have implemented protections from this specific issue and will always take action to secure our users around the world. Wow, someone pinch me. Has Hades frozen over? That's that's <laughs> a pretty uh, strong statement there. 
It is, but what you're missing is that they don't want it compromised because it's ours. It belongs to Google. <laughs> yeah. You can't have it. Yeah, it's, it's it, like it's, some viruses that delete other viruses so that exactly. they're the only virus on the machine. Yeah. yeah. It's like the whole there's like asterisk. No, no no government or any organization except for Google will mm. we be able to take any of this data. It's like, right. yeah. I mean, it will, it's great that it, they're still it, doing it, you know, but yes. it, and it's really interesting that the way that this was set up, that this, this, this uh, certificate they were trying to institute was like allow them to decrypt everything so you could get passwords, mm-hmm. locations, like everything about their users. And this has actually been, they've been doing, they've been trying to do something like this for years because originally like 2015, Kazakhstan tried to do, tried to pass something that was something similar, but not exactly the same method. And Firefox was like, no, we're shutting that down. And then there was also like lawsuits against them for doing it and everything. And they're, so they're still continuing to do it. And it's really great to see that, you know, even Google recognizes this is a horrible thing for them to do and stopping it. So so in practice, basically what this is going to do is for those users that are compromised, it will show them a page essentially that this is unsecure and, you know, inform them that this is happening. And then Mozilla is saying, you know, the best, option for users is going to be to use VPNs or Tor or something like that to, to circumvent this scrutiny that, that is being placed on them. So yeah, this awesome. podcast is now heard in over 107 countries. There's a good chance Kazakhstan is one of those countries that listen to this podcast. If somebody lives there, I would be interested in them sending us an email to give us some details on how this is all working there, because obviously this is a very serious situation. Mozilla is also encouraging the users there to install VPNs, to utilize the Tor network, to also bypass certifications and restrictions there. So it is great at the end of the day to see two of these browsers come together, take a very similar stand against this type of invasive uh, overreach from the government there. Um, But if you are in this country and listen to our podcast, send us some information on this, how long it's been going on, just some general information of how it's impacting or how you're getting around it so we can get the message out. It's a very interesting thing that's happening. I think the Western world and most of the world, actually, where governments don't act this way, we worry about our privacy going to a corporation or a third party. And in this case, the insidious nature of a government being able to intercept all of your communications, that, that is, we're stepping way over the line. So um, the fact that they've recognized, I mean, even Google, right, has recognized that's a, that's a bridge too far. Mm. It's encouraging. And God forbid that the British government with Jeltenham GCHQ and the, you know, the Americans with, um, what's it, the NSC that Ryan works for? Hey, yeah. well, <laughs> it's never been confirmed. But I also want to give a shout out to all the citizens there in Hong Kong, who today I saw pictures of them tearing down the facial recognition cameras that their government put up and destroying those. I mean, the citizens have to take a stand. Companies need to take a stand. We need as communities to take a stand together to say enough is enough. There's too much overreach, not just in this country, but other countries as well, where you, you know, people don't realize all this stuff is happening. It's growing. The overreach is occurring across the board. So in any time I see stuff like this, I'm very happy to see when companies or communities come together, take a stand. Absolutely. So Everspace 2 is coming to Linux. And now this is really cool because Everspace is one of the, the best space shooter games. And it's been available for a couple years. I think it was released in 2017. And yeah. it it's a uh, it's already has a Linux port so that you can already use it on Linux if you want to. So you don't have to dual boot like Noah does. And um, 
<laughs> but Everspace Two is also coming. Uh, and if you were, if you're interested now, you can check, you can still check out uh, Everspace One because Everspace Two is coming out in 2021. But they've already announced that it's going to have Linux support, so that is awesome. And Everspace is still worth checking out. It's still a game that you could, use. if you like uh, space shooters, it's definitely worth checking out because they actually have over 4,800 positive reviews on that game, which is a ridiculous amount. So they have like. I have a couple, like I think, like five thousand, five hundred, two thousand, five thousand, two hundred view, reviews, and like seventy-eight percent of them are positive. So that is significant amount of uh, you know people liking that game. Oh yeah. And there's a lot of streamers that are showing it, and it's really cool looking. Uh, and I, I actually want to, I, I can't wait to play it actually now because after watching some streams today, I was like, yeah, this looks cool. Um, but anyway, so the Ever, Everspace Two is described as a fast-paced single-player space shooter with deep exploration, tons of loot, and classic RPG elements. Uh, experience a thrilling story set in a vivid, handcrafted open world full of secrets and perils on your journey to become human. That is interesting. Do you know what's that part about the human thing, becoming human? Yeah, so that's part of the storyline that you're going to have to play the first one to really kind of start getting the mm-hmm. whole feel for it. But Everspace is one of these incredible games that, Zeb, you would even give it a pass, which is why I didn't give it to you this game because it wasn't pixelated. But it has gorgeous, gorgeous 3D graphics. So it is definitely a game that I like to show off on Linux when I'm doing benchmarks or different tests because it's just one of those games that looks beautiful. It's also very taxing. It's one of the few games that can actually get my Radeon 7 to spin up at certain times when there's a certain amount of enemies on the screen. And I'm telling you that's a feat because I can't ever get the thing to ever just spin its fans on a high RPM uh, until I play certain games like this. So it's a very taxing game graphically, but beautiful game. A lot of fun. It's well-designed and Rocketfish games. I love that they're giving us Linux support. Now, you remember when Steam Proton came out, there was a bunch of people who were saying, even putting videos out there saying, this is going to destroy gaming on Linux because there's no motivation for anybody to port games to Linux anymore. This goes to show you how wrong, and of course, every other episode we've talked about of all of them having native Linux games, how wrong that was. In fact, I almost feel like we're getting more Linux native ports now than we were before Proton because I just think it opened a lot of people's eyes to the capabilities of Linux out there. So um, big shout out to Rockfish Games and definitely if you like space shooters out there, go check out Everspace. You're going to love it. Okay, so what I also found interesting about this particular article is that here on Destination Linux, we try and look after your data. But so should we also stop this blatant discrimination against old English people. Why did I not get this game to review? This game is fantastic. (laughs) There's no pixels. It's got great storyline, fantastic graphics, beautiful music. And you give it to Michael. That's right. That's exactly why, because I know you prefer those pixelated games that can run on your (laughs) NVIDIA hardware. Because you, need, you needed pixel games for me. at destinationlinux.org if you think I'm being victimized. <laughs> you did a GoFundMe go to America. Please do a GoFundMe to get some decent games to review. <laughs> Don't let me down, users. You can do it. Okay, so moving on to this week's Software Spotlight. And I know that a number, another member of the team here has already um, done an article on this, so I'll pass over to him in a short moment. But 
Two-factor authentication. How important is it nowadays for you to realize that when you're out there in the wild, you shouldn't just be signing on to all this important data with a username and password. You need to use some other form of authentication to make sure your stuff is safe. So what better way to do it than via something that there is open source? Free OTP is an, a two-factor authentication application for systems utilizing one-time password protocols. Tokens can be easily or can be added easily by scanning a QR code. So the two-factor authentication tool is available on F-Droid, Google Play, Apple Store, and GitHub. It's an open source tool published by Red Hat themselves under the Apache 2 Permissive Free Software License. Whatever that means, licenses send me cold. But it's free. It's good. Ryan, point everybody to your video because it was truly great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I did a video on this recently because in my own um Geek community telegram group for those that are patrons of that show we were talking in the chat and i was asking them what two-factor authentication tool do you use and i wasn't surprised but it was interesting most people were using google authenticator or authy a lot of google authenticator and it makes sense because anywhere you go in fact some services even say if you want two-factor authentication, download the Google Authenticator on there. So it almost gives you the impression that you have to use the Google Authenticator in order to utilize it. But as I'm not a big fan of Google's practices and really don't want their tools, uh, I'm looking for something that's open source. So in my personal search out there, free OTP is one that I found that was available on every, um, every platform from mobile, iOS, Android, Windows, Linux, doesn't matter. It's available there. For your device, you can of course download it from GitHub. Um, you and it just works. It's very simple. It just works, and it's from Red Hat, a very trusted company. Now there is some comments, some comments from the community that have come back and said, "Yeah, but it hasn't been maintained heavily as of recent days." And there is some truth to that. For instance, the iOS version was updated last five months ago. Uh, the Android, I think, version was updated more than a year ago, but it's not really something that's that advanced that needs constant maintenance with it either. Ooh. It's certainly not a dead project. Um, and in fact, I looked at other authenticators out there, some were for Blizzard and others that hadn't been updated in well over a year as well. So it's not unusual in this thing, especially if it's storing it locally and not in a cloud, that you're not going to need a ton of updates to the service. So it's still out there, but there are, are other ones on F-Droid that you can use as well, like uh, Aegis, I think, A-E-G-I-S is one people are recommending. I'm seeing in some of the comments left on my video, as well as some others to check out. I can't speak to those. I've been using free OTP for well over probably six months now. I've had zero issues with it. It always works. It's a really good option. Now, Michael, I was going to ask you, Bitwarden has some type of two-factor authentication for the paid version available to it as well. I'm a huge fan of Bitwarden. I've had some issues with Bitwarden's two-factor authentication. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. I was curious if you've had the same response, meaning I've set up the code. I think it uses TOTP, mm -hmm. but it would not authenticate on certain apps where I've never had that happen on free OTP, and that's why I stayed away from Bitwarden's 2FA. Well, I actually haven't used that with free OTP. I didn't even know about this application until this episode. So, um, you know, there, I'm, I'm looking forward to trying out free OTP. 
but I have used uh, Bitwarden in other authenticators, and most of the time, I haven't really had any. I've had a couple times where it didn't work, but it was like a it was a fluke because out of the like okay. most of the time it worked fine. Uh, but it might could be like just like a protocol implementation in between the two not working. Uh, but I'd have to test it out more to see. But um, overall, I think that um, I I am definitely look, looking forward to trying out this particular application because I don't want to use like I don't use Google Authenticator, but I do use Authy. And yeah. I don't want to, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm glad that we spotlighted mm-hmm. it for this episode. I yeah, have there... a question, Orion, uh, if I may. Has this replaced your YubiKey, or is that something you continue to use as well? I use my YubiKey as well, but I use that for my most secure areas. So I kind of split my security up because, honestly, I don't want one thing to be the way mm-hmm. you can get into all of my stuff. So my general rule is, my security is pretty complex in that if you break into one thing, you may get some accounts, but you're not going to get others because you're going to need a YubiKey for the others. It, so I kind of have my stuff broken out. It To me, it hasn't replaced everything, but I would be confident enough in free OTP to allow mm-hmm. it to replace everything um, because of the fact that it stores everything in a localized format versus going into a cloud. And because you have Red Hat's name behind it, I would like to see them put some more maintenance and work into it. And I understand that some people have forked the project and others, but there's something about having Red Hat's name behind it. It gives me a lot mm-hmm. of reassurance. So I'd like to see them continue to yeah. offer some support. I did follow the money trail, by the way, for Authy, which I talk about in the video. Authy is interesting because they state, but it's not open source, so we don't know. They state that they make their money on applications that they sell to enterprises that they then take Authy as a service for their clients to add additional security to those enterprises. That's why they offer it for free because they give it to all their customers and they don't really charge and they make their money from the enterprise customers. So they at least have a valid excuse for how they're making money. Cause to me, always follow the money trail. Nothing's truly free of mm-hmm. what they're doing. So, but I can't verify that cause it's not open source. So the, uh, the reason that people recommend Google Google's implementation is because really besides Authy, there, there aren't very, very many good options. At least the last time I checked, uh, I had actually been using LastPass's version. They okay. have, and when I was a LastPass user before I went to Bitwarden and now that I'm on Bitwarden, I, I'm sorry to hear you've had issues, but the issues that I've had are timing, right? So the key will get copied into your, into your clipboard. So the way it works, if you haven't used this in Bitwarden, is you set up the key and then you can have it autofill the clipboard with the key after you've done the login steps. So you log in with your username and password, screen refreshes, it asks for the key. If you just hit control V, you're going to paste in the key because it's already in your clipboard. If the timing was such that you were doing that right as the 30 second rollover. That could have been it, yeah. That's what's going to happen then. Um, But that works almost all the time for me. And since I've been using Bitwarden, I've been able to incorporate most of my, cause I do a lot of web stuff and I'm, I'm logging in and out of like dozens of mm. different places and I need to be able to get those keys and I want to use them. And, and this just makes it so much more straightforward for me to do that. So Bitwarden does have a very good uh, implementation of it. And, but it is good to know that there is an alternative to Google authenticator because I really don't like it. The biggest problem with it and with any two-factor authentication is if you use a primary device and let's say I have a a phone that I have all of my two-factor authentication on, right? If that phone dies, you now do not have your keys. Right. And you are now locked out of all of your accounts. And so that could be a real problem. 
And so no matter what you use, just as a word of advice, and this is why I like Bitwarden because it's kind of distributed and you're saving it in, a, in multiple places, is don't lose those codes. Yeah. Yeah. So every service, when you sign up, everyone that I've signed up for that I can think of anyways, will offer you an option because this is a really good point. When you put in your authenticate, your two-factor authentication to download some backup codes. Mm-hmm. Now, I've witnessed people seeing that pop up when I'm teaching about 2FA and instantly closing it. I'm like, you're supposed to save those. You're supposed to save those, write them down, put them Somewhere in a somewhere yeah. because if yeah. your device breaks, you have no other way of getting a lot. Some services will allow you to do some verification processes, but at the very least, it's going to cost you hours and hours of negotiating with the company to prove you are who you are. And in some cases, you may not ever be able to get back into your account. Those backup codes are there for a reason. Those one-time codes, download them or write them down manually, stick them in a safe somewhere or however you secure your stuff offline and keep them for that case in which you break your phone if you're not using a cloud-based authentication service like you said, Eric. That's a really good point. So for a tip and trick of the week, use the command script to record the steps you're taking in shell screen. Script records the actions you take and once you type exit, it writes all of that history of the actions you took to a file named TypeScript by default. You can change that file name if you want to. So we talked about OBS being used to record your steps, your screens and all that type of thing. You could do that kind of in the terminal as well, just by typing script. You're gonna hit enter, you'll go through whatever you wanna do. Maybe you wanna show somebody how to install Arch. Maybe you wanna show them, you know, send tutorials out there, whatever you're doing for, or something you save for yourself to reference later on of what you did to a machine. Once you type exit, that, that work that you did within that time period is going to be saved there. It's a lot more easier than history in which you could have a bunch of different people's uh, or a bunch of different history from different things you were doing on the machine saved. This would be for a specific time period that you're wanting to capture a specific um, tutorial that you want to create. So that is something to keep in mind. And please remember to hit type in exit afterwards or it's just going to keep going and going and going until eventually you <laughs> do. So you have to remember that last step there. Sounds like you learned that from experience. Yeah, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So a quick question. So once you've got your 25 steps that you took to do something, would you then just say play script X and it would do that on the terminal? No, but interesting uh, that you say that. You could take that file, export it into a bash and basically run through it that way. So in essence, yes, you couldn't run it without putting the bash up at the top, but you could take that file and yeah convert nice. it easily it's really it's a really good tip it's actually one of those things where um when i saw this in the the in the notes i was like oh right that does exist that's a fantastic <laughs> tip because i have i forgot about it for years and then it's like oh right i should totally put that in like a like a notepad or something to make me remind myself this exists yep So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. We love our patrons. And since Noah's not here, our Kofi supporters as well. Take that, Noah. So we just want to give a special shout out for all of your support. We do a live show for our patrons. So come and join us if you want to be a part of the show. Some of our patrons even get pulled in to do the show when some of us don't show up, like Eric here. And think about that, Eric. For just a dollar, you had to work on top of paying the dollar to be entertained <laughs> to join us as a co-host. Yes, yeah, so, something happened there. I don't know what happened. But, uh, <laughs> what a steal. Exactly. It's perfect. 
So Ryan mentioned that we have Ko-Fi as a way to support the show. It offers a nice monthly option that allow you to have the same perks as Patreon. I'm a subscriber on both, so I actually see the show notes and the messages. There's a link in the show notes and on the website to join Ko-Fi. The perks include things like access to live shows, unedited versions of the show, as well as our sincere gratitude. So as usual, please come back to us and let us know what you think or ask any burning questions via numerous methods. You can email comments at destinationlinux.org. We have our Telegram group, our Discord, our Twitter, Mastodon, and a whole host of other ways that Michael has got at our website, destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. So please keep those comments and questions coming. We love to read them and hear ways we might be able to improve the show and let Ryan know he is being prejudicial to this <laughs> grandfather of... How dare you. If you want more content, uh, it, the fun doesn't stop here. We have our own channels that you can check out. So, for example, you can go to Ryan's channel at youtube.com slash dosgeek, where he fills your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can check out Zeb's uh, content by going to youtube.com slash Boss, where you can find Zeb playing games and occasionally doing some Gentoo installations and how-tos. So there you go. You can check out my content where you can uh, go to see an in-depth weekly Linux GNU's podcast called This Week in Linux and other Linux-related content. You can check out Noah's content by going to asknoahshow.com where he does a weekly uh, talk radio show on Tuesdays. So you can join him to ask him questions about Linux. And, and Yeah, you could call in and ask him where he was for Destination Linux this week if yeah. you want. And also, uh, why does he love WSL so much? And uh, you, can, you can also check out Eric's Eric's uh, content. You can go to uh, destinationlinux.org slash Eric Adams to go track, to take directly to his YouTube channel to see all of his content. And we'll have links to the Linux Spotlight we talked about earlier as well in the show notes. And also be sure to, to like that smash button and share the show on social media. So everyone have a great week. And remember that life comes first, but Destination Linux comes a close second. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. I love it. Thanks, everyone.